Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hi, this is Ibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time To Write, a new publication on Medium. And we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Pam Jenoff is the author of The Woman with the Blue Star, and she and I had this conversation as part of the Peloton Moms Book Club, which you should definitely check out if you haven't already. Pam is the author of several books of historical fiction, including the New York Times bestsellers The Lost Girls of Paris and The Orphan's Tale. She holds a degree in international affairs from George Washington University and a degree in history from the University of Cambridge. She received her JD from University of Pennsylvania. Her novels are inspired by experiences working at the Pentagon and as a diplomat for the State Department handling Holocaust issues in Poland. She lives with her husband and three children near Philadelphia, where she teaches law. Her current bestseller is The Woman with the Blue Star, which is a riveting tale of courage and unlikely friendship during World War II. All right. Well, it's seven o'clock and I see some of the moms showing up. So I just wanted to welcome everybody to the Peloton Moms Book Club virtual author chat with Pam Jenoff for The Woman with the Blue Star. And it is being special guest hosted tonight by Zibby Owens. Thank you, ladies, for coming. And I'm going to take a quick moment to introduce Zibby. For those of you who don't know Zibby, she is the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And it's been one of Oprah's favorite podcasts for two years in a row. She's the CEO and founder of the Moms Don't Have Time to. She's formed her own media company and has multiple podcasts. 
She did an anthology about moms don't have time to during the quarantine of COVID. She has, I believe, another anthology coming out this November. She does all of the things. She has her hands in all of the pies, and she does a lot of things with Good Morning America and gives great book recommendations. So we hope that you guys will check out her podcast in the future. And with that, Zibby, welcome. Thank you. Well, my hand in all the pies. You must have been in my, you could have been in my kitchen earlier today. <laughs> like, were there secret cameras? Anyway, thank you for that. And thanks for having me at the Peloton Moms Book Club. I was much more active on my Peloton and have really gotten off the beaten path. And I don't know, I noticed that my dog's water bowl was on there, you know, the other day. And I'm like, I wonder how long it's it's been there. Anyway, I am thrilled to be interviewing Pam Jenoff tonight, whose book was absolutely amazing. The Woman with the Blue Star. And I'm so excited to talk to her about that tonight. And this will become a podcast on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Just letting you know that, but not the Q&A, just this part. So I will read Pam's bio from her website. Here, Pam, say hi before I launch into everything. <laughs> there she is. <laughs> Pam Jenoff was born in Maryland and raised outside Philadelphia. She attended George Washington University in Washington, D.C. and Cambridge University in England. Upon receiving her master's in history from Cambridge, she accepted an appointment as special assistant to the Secretary of the Army. The position provided a unique opportunity to witness and participate in operations at the most senior levels of government, including helping the families of the Pan Am Flight 103 victims secure their memorial at Arlington National Cemetery, observing recovery efforts at the site of the Oklahoma City bombing and attending ceremonies to commemorate the 50th anniversary of World War II at sites such as Bag Bastogne and Corregidor. Is that right? Very good. Very good. Oh, thank you. That's like 10 years of French in school for nothing. Anyway, following her work at the Pentagon, Pam moved to the State Department. In 1996, she was assigned to the U.S. consulate in Krakow, Poland. It was during this period that Pam developed her expertise in Polish-Jewish relations and the Holocaust. Working on matters such as preservation of Auschwitz and the restitution of Jewish property in Poland, Pam developed close relations with the surviving Jewish community. Pam left the Foreign Service in 1998 to attend law school and graduated from the University of Pennsylvania. She worked for several years as a labor and employment attorney, both at a firm and in-house in Philadelphia, and now teaches law school at Rutgers. Pam is the New York Times bestselling author of The Woman with the Blue Star, The Lost Girls of Paris, The Orphan's Tale, The Commandant's Girl, The Diplomat's Wife, The Ambassador's Daughter, The Last Summer at Chelsea Beach, The Winter Guest, The Things We Cherished, Almost Home, and A Hidden Affair. She also authored a short story in the anthology, Grand Central original post-war stories of love and reunion. She lives outside Philadelphia with her husband, three children, dog, cat, lizard, and bird. So welcome, Pam. Thank you. Thank you for the warm introduction. And I'm such a fan, Zibby, of your podcast and everything you do and all of your, your lists and everything. It's just, a, a, you're a force and we're so grateful, all the authors. So. Oh, thank you so much. As well as a reader, a consumer. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, I am a fan of yours too. And, you know, consumed this at rapid speed. I absolutely loved it. And I haven't really stopped thinking about some of the images in the book that have really sort of been haunting me that you described in such detail. But why don't you tell, I'm not sure who in the book club actually read the book and a lot of people have their, you know, their videos off. So I can't see a show of hands. All right. Well, Sue read it. So that's good news for all of us. Sue and Lauren. All right. Barb. Great. So for those who might not have read it, would you mind giving a brief overview of the book. And then I want to hear about what inspired you to write it. So can I do the second part by way of lead in? So let me tell you what inspired me to write it, which will set the stage for the story. Is that okay? 
you know what? You do however you want. I'll just be here. <laughs> so The Woman with the Blue Star came out May 4th. It's my 11th book. And I write a lot of books set around World War II and the Holocaust, material that I've worked with for about 25 years from when I was a diplomat. And I'm happy to say more about that if folks want. But I have a deep love for the era. So But the stories I write, they don't come from my personal experiences or even really people that I met. They come from stories that I find when I'm researching and I'm kind of looking for what am I going to write about next? And so when I'm looking for an idea, I'm looking for the gasp. I'm looking for the (gasps) moment because if something will make me gasp after all these years of working with the war, then I'm hopeful I'm on to something that readers will feel the same way about, that will illuminate, that will teach and inspire, that we really haven't heard about before. In this case, for The Woman with the Blue Star, the gasp was the discovery of a group of Jewish people in Lviv, Poland, who survived World War II by hiding in a sewer. And I don't mean that they hid in that sewer on their way out of town. They hid and lived in that sewer for more than a year. And hearing this, I had so many questions. Who were these people and how had they survived and what were their lives like and who had helped them? And I was particularly taken from an anecdote from the true story. I don't write true stories, but an anecdote from the true story in which a young girl looked up through the sewer grate and she saw a girl her own age buying flowers. And she was so taken by the disparity between her life and the girl above Her mother said to her, someday there will be flowers for you. It was this kind of promise. And so when I heard that, I imagined what would it have been like if the girl below and the girl above had the chance to get to know one another and what would that have meant for both of their lives? So that's a very long introduction to say that the woman with the blue star is about Sadie. She's a young Jewish woman who is living in the sewer, hiding with her parents, although she increasingly becomes isolated. And one day she looks up and she sees Ella on the street. Now, Ella is not Jewish. And at first glance, Ella has it pretty good. She lives, she's from an affluent family. She's not being persecuted. But when we look closer, we see that Ella has lost all of her family except for her really horrible stepmother who is consorting with the Germans and her ex-fiance who hasn't even told her that he's back from the war. And so Ella has this really deep loneliness and need. And when she sees Sadie through the sewer grate, there's a very powerful connection between them. Wow. Well, the image of the flowers and that moment, I mean, it's, it was so, the whole thing was just so random. It's almost hard to comprehend, right? That two people living on opposite sides of town could have such divergent paths and and sort of have to face off with just this barrier between them and the lengths to which people will go. I mean, it's it was amazing, these stories of survival and the way that you put us sort of in that moment at the time and everything. And it's also such a great show of female friendship and what people are willing to do for each other. So tell me a little bit more about developing that relationship between the two girls and how you made that believable and how you treated that and, you know, how, how to get people who are to, to relate and yet have it work so well on the page. You know, one of 
the things I love best about historical fiction is taking women who through normal history would have walked on a very set path and suddenly through war or catastrophe, they are thrown off that path and they're tested and challenged in ways that they never thought possible. And it's really fun to see how they grow and respond in those situations. And one of those parts that's super fun is taking women who through normal circumstances never would have met, never would have crossed paths, but because of the war, they do, and seeing what happens with them. Now, specifically with Ella and Sadie, I like to keep it very real. So if you read the author's note for The Woman with the Blue Star, you will know that I turned in a clunker of a first draft. I mean, after 11 books, I handed in a book and my editor was like, no. I'm like, no? Like, no. And so I had to rewrite this book in five months. And part of what changed was my first draft was only from Sadie's point of view. It was only the girl in the sewer. And it was my genius editor, who's always right, who said, we need to see Sadie's point of view and Ella's point of view. So that's how it kind of evolved. And I wasn't sure it was difficult to open up to Ella. I know. I loved in your note how you were like, yeah, like we're going to go there. You had some something funny. You said like, yep, not going to lie. Like this is really what happened. Oh, it was so true. So true. <laughs> so after 11 books, like take us back to the beginning of how did you start writing historical fiction? Like what appealed to you about the genre and, and how did you sort of tackle the first book and keep getting better and better until we end up with these really vibrant characters today? Thank you. So I was one of those little kids who always wanted to be a writer. And it was always novels, like never short stories, never poems. I was like, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book. And then all through those many years when I lived in Europe and I went to school, I had plenty of time to write, but I never got started. You know what I mean? Like you've got this project, you want to get off the ground and you can't. And it was always the novel for me. I had lots of novels shoved in drawers. And the turning point in my life was actually 9-11. I had worked for the State Department, and I came back from the State Department, and I went to law school. And I graduated from law school in Philadelphia, and I started working at a big law firm on September 4th, 2001, right? So it's a big deal. It's coming up this week. And one week later, I started on a Tuesday, one Tuesday later, 9-11 happened. I was sitting at my desk at a law firm, and I love attorneys. I make baby lawyers. I teach law school. Like that's what I do. I think it's a wonderful profession. But that was the moment when I said, I have a deeper dream of being a novelist. And if I don't get started, like I could have been a 9-11 victim. It never would have happened. And so it was that, that life mortality moment. And I took a course at Temple Night School in Philadelphia. And I teach at Rutgers, but this course was at Temple. And the course was actually called Write Your Novel This Year. And I started to work on a book. And I, interestingly, I didn't set out to write historical fiction. I started out with two first chapters in that workshop. One was a historical and one was a present day. And people responded more to the historical. And so that became my first book, The Commandant's Girl. So I started in that writing workshop, which was a wonderful experience. But just because I joined a workshop didn't mean I was like off to the races. It was five years and 39 publisher rejections, you know, before I got accepted on that first book. And bear in mind, I was a new attorney at a big law firm. I had $1,000 a month in student loan debt. So 
I couldn't just go be a writer. So I used to write the books from like five to seven in the morning before I went to the firm. So that was kind of how it all came together. But I will tell you, I always read a lot of historical fiction growing up. So maybe it was faded, you know? Wow. That's, I mean, people talk about how crazy it is to work at law firms and how you have no time to yourself. So, you know, that that is so all encompassing that the fact that you could do it simultaneously is particularly impressive. So why did you not give up after 48 rejections? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Well, you know what happened? So we submitted my first book, Commandant's Girl Everywhere, and we get all of these rejections. And then the agent I worked with at the time, he said, well go write another book and we'll sell that one first. And then we'll kind of bootstrap this in. And I was like, as if it were that easy, but I was I'm <laughs> diligently working on another book for 11 months. And on April 8th, 2005, I was at the firm. It was a Friday afternoon and the caller ID pops up on my work phone. And, you know, even then people emailed, it wasn't all phone calls. So I picked up the phone. It was my agent. And I said, are you calling to fire me? Cause this poor guy had not made a dime off of my work. And he said, no. And then I thought he was calling to yell at me for not finishing that second book. And he said, no. He said, I'm calling to tell you I sold the first book. And it turned out that one publisher that we didn't even know was still reading it made a tiny little offer for Commandant's Girl and off we went. But I don't know. I just, I honestly believe that the only difference between me and anyone who's not published, you know, is is largely just keeping going. Because in that original writer's workshop, there were many better writers than me. And that's not modesty. I'm being straight up. There were some great writers in that workshop. And I think sometimes that the only reason I'm here is just because I kept knocking. Well, I mean, if you're like a salesman trying to sell milk and it's spoiled milk, it doesn't matter how many doors you knock on. Right? Right? No, I mean, you have to have something. No, it's true. I mean, I kept, I also, I didn't just keep knocking. I kept doing 5 a.m. But, you know, it, it was, it was definitely that more perspiration than, you know, however Ben Franklin says it, more perspiration than inspiration. I don't know. Wow. So you started on your journey, you got that published. And then fast forward to today, 
when you wrote all those other books along the way, was it still those anecdotes every so often and just the stories that you happened to find and hear and you kept taking them and then all of a sudden now you've written like, you know, two handfuls of books and it's um, amazing. You know, so I started with Commandant's Girl and I actually wound up writing a sequel and a prequel to the, that book and and that was really fun. And then, you know, I sort of, I wrote a couple modern books. I wandered around a few different publishers. Like I sort of had a long and winding road, but I always came back to World War II and the stories. And there were always stories. And there are there are moments, like, look, there are moments when I'm, we've looked at it and I've said, is World War II played out? You know what I mean? Like I actually, I will tell you honestly, it was right after The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna mm-hmm. and All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. And those two so books, good. Yeah. both of those books were both so those, those good. Those were so good, yeah. And I looked around, I'm like, well, it can't be done any better. Like, how do we do this? I looked around, but then there were still stories to be told and a great appetite with readers. And so, but, you know, some of my books have been modern. I wrote one book that was set on the home front during World War II, which I particularly love. It's called The Last Summer at Chelsea Beach. And then I'm back to stories during the war. And it's always, you know, it's just that little nugget of history that, that sets me off. If I think it's amazing and I can do it respectfully, then that's kind of where I start. Did you ever think about this being YA or middle grade or anything? Because you know how sometimes when you have a protagonist who's younger, now all of a sudden that means you're like in the YA category. This is maybe a two-talking shop situation, but... No, it's true. No, because I read part of this out loud to my daughter who's eight, but she likes me to read whatever I'm reading that night to her before we go to bed. And, and, you know, not to say it's for an eight-year-old, obviously. It's like a lot of complex themes and everything. But, you know, she was really interested because it's someone close to her age going through something. So I don't know if you would consider yeah, it. No, it's a good point. So I actually, my favorite books are kids in YA because I think those authors are just deities. I like 25 years ago, I worked at Borders for a summer and I was like, can oh, I wow. please work in the YA section? I love those books. I don't have the voice for kids in YA. And so for some reason, my protagonist's tend to be younger. They tend to be that age of women. Um, But I do, so I don't like genre. When Commandant Scroll came out, uh, Publishers Weekly called it historical romance at its finest. And I was like, romance? Like, (laughs) have a romance. So I don't really always love the genre thing, but for these are, my books can be read by YA. It depends on the parent's sensitivity. So one of my 11 year old twins has read like three of my books already. And that's fine. They're very PG 13. Like there's not a lot of graphic anything. I write my books so that my mom can read them. So I think it's okay. Most of them are pretty okay for the younger set, but I'm happy if they read them. Yes. And did you, like, where was your family around World War II? Like, what's your personal story? So interestingly, all four of my grandparents are from that, you know, area known as the Pale and that kind of Poland, could be Poland, could be Ukraine, could be Russia, you know, based on what year it was, right? And when I lived in Poland, I was there for almost two and a half years, I would always try and take trains east to see where my family was from. It was very, very difficult. All of my grandparents, and I should say great-grandparents in some cases, because three of my grandparents were born here, but all of my grandparents and great-grandparents were in America by the time the war happened. So I lost no family, no blood family in the Holocaust. Now, my one grandmother, whose story is fabulous, 
She grew up, her family fled Russia for China when she was two, and she lived in China for 20 years. And she came to America by way of Japan, Hawaii, San Francisco, and across. And I wrote about her story in the Grand Central Anthology. I sort of borrowed her story, but I didn't lose family in the Holocaust. Now, when I lived in Poland, I became extremely close to the elderly survivors who were still living in that part of the world. And so they were like grandparents to me as well. Wow. I was actually, I was chatting with a woman today whose grandparents also you know, they were born around the time. Let me see if I get the date dates right. Anyway, they were they were born there, and her parents were born in DP camps. Both of her parents in different camps. And anyway, she actually also had really interesting stories about. And I don't want to give anything away, but you know, babies and you know, rep- you know, having families in the Holocaust time and era and all this stuff. So anyway. I should put you guys in touch. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. (laughs) So having lived through these characters' eyes, right, and all of it, the mom, the dad, the the Lily, and I mean, everybody is Sadie. And what did you learn about the period that you, even though you've read 8 million things about it, I'm sure, and written and all this stuff and researched and met people, like, where did it take you that you hadn't expected? Well, Obviously, the sewer was kind of a revelation to me, but it wasn't just this sewer. It was, first of all, it brought together people who were from really different backgrounds, who didn't know each other above ground, right? And they're suddenly kind of living in this very cramped space. The detail of their lives, you know, that there were there were books and, you know, how did they have light and, you know, that how did they celebrate, you know, the Sabbath, observe the Sabbath and, and, and all of those things. But the other piece that I really took away from this was the man who helped them. So there was a fellow named, in real life, named Leopold. In my book, he's Pavel. And he was a sewer worker. And he was not a particularly honorable person. Like He had been a thief before the war. But he met this family. And originally, he agreed to help for money. And then they ran out of money. And he still kept helping. And he and his wife would go to all these markets around the city to get food without attracting attention and just risk their own family. And he was a great hero. And after the war, he died not more than two years after the war because he and his daughter were riding bikes and a truck came barreling toward them and he pushed his young daughter out of the way to save her life. So even then he was a hero. So it's these individual stories that are really so moving. Oh my gosh. Do you already know what story you're going to work on next? I am working on a new, I'm always working. So here's my rule. I don't let myself start a new book until one is finished. Cause it's like, you can't play with that shiny new toy in the corner until you clean up your toys, right? That's very important, but I never take a break. I'm pretty much right back into it once I've got that idea. So I am working on a book inspired by a true story of the only known train sabotage on of a train on the way to Auschwitz. So there was a train going from Belgium to Auschwitz that was sabotaged to try and rescue people. And so that's what I'm looking at fictitiously in my new book. What happened in real life? They did get some people off, but obviously there's great cost. And so my book looks at both the people who were on the train. And again, my characters are fictitious, but it's both people who are on the train and people who were engaged in the sabotage. Oh, Rachel in the chat is very excited about this. So it's not going to be out till early 2023. And I'm going to be honest, that sounds really far away to you. And it sounds too close to me. It's Wait close. You got to, you close. have to step up. I'm step trying up to hustle. I'm hustling. <laughs> 5 a.m. writer. 5 a.m. writing has become 4 a.m. writing. That's not a place I like to go. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The fours are tough. Right. It's a different, it's a crazy the difference. I'm tough. telling my kids like five is awesome, but four is terrible. Yeah. 
It's it's a fine line. <laughs> it's a fine line. Did you know the ending of this book before at the beginning? Because like I did not see the ending coming until the end. So let me say this. I'm sure you've heard this. Oh, someone did. just asked the question in the chat. I did not get that from the chat. I That's literally- <laughs> hilarious. Great minds. Great minds. So here's the thing. You know this probably from other writers. There's these two types of writers, the plotters and the pantsers. And the plotters are the dear souls that write everything sequentially and they make it look nice before they move on. That's not me. I'm a pantser. I write by the seat of my pants. So I like throw words at a screen in a random order. It's terrible. But the reason I'm telling you this is I'm never sure if you say, like, did you know at the beginning what the ending is? There isn't really a beginning or ending for me. It kind of all happens at once. So it's very hard for me to go back chronologically and think about what I knew when. I often know an opening scene, and I often have some idea where I wind up at the end. And in between, there's like one or two scenes that I call high moments, and they're little lighthouses that kind of help me get along the way. So I probably knew how the book was going to end roughly, but maybe not who. Got it. Right? Okay. So did you go back and write the prologue later? I write a rough sketch of the prologue. I'll have like a rough sketch of the prologue. But if you read that prologue and you really don't know who is speaking per se, I don't necessarily know that either. Right? I'm just throwing down those. I'm throwing down those words. Someone once said that the plotters use scaffolding to build, but the pantsers, it's like an archaeological dig where you're picking up an object and like dusting it off and trying to see what's there. So that's how it works for me. It's sort of immersive in that way. I like it. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? So I do. I think there's kind of three things that are really key. One is discipline, right? And this probably goes to the moms not having time to read, right? So discipline is you find, you know when your best writing time is and you really have to protect it very zealously because even after all these years, not my beloved mom or my sainted husband who's downstairs taking care of the puppy with the, and the kids right now, nobody says, why don't you go take some writing time, right? People just don't say that to us in our lives. You have to like, uh, 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 and this is mine. And, and you have to do that a little bit and be flexible and pivot like we all did with COVID, right? So that's one piece, be disciplined. Second piece, be tenacious. And that goes back to that writing workshop and me knocking on the door for, you know, till it opened. Cause I think that makes a really huge difference. Even when lots of people said, why don't you give this up? It isn't going anywhere. The last piece is, ability to revise. So this is where having been an attorney comes in helpful because when you're an attorney, people like mark up your work and you have to fix it. And I think as a writer, if you can take that feedback from your editor, your agent, your trusted writers, you know, whoever you're getting feedback from and make the changes in your own way, because often they don't give you solutions. They only give you problems and you have to figure out the solution. So think ability to revise. I like it. Excellent. Amazing. Well, thank you, Pam, for chatting. We're going to keep chatting with everybody here, but for the podcast portion, I'm going to turn it off and (laughs) free you from that. So hold on. I'll say goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com